Hey guys, welcome back to the Purpose of Money podcast. Today, I'm super excited. We have special guest, Brian Driscoll. We're going to b- talk about how you combine your marketing and real estate expertise to have an amazing multi-million dollar business. You are listening to the Purpose of Money podcast, a podcast where we talk about ways to build wealth and create more freedom in your life today. I am your host, Aquania Escarne. Brian Driscoll is an expertise who's been able to combine digital marketing with his savvy real estate investment background. He helps clients maximize their potential, and he has a long history of success in marketing, starting out as an independent freelancer to help businesses strengthen their SEO backgrounds and their websites in 2000. He started out as a one-man show working from home via Odesk, now Upwork, with the goal to help people grow and get to know themselves and their audience well. In 2014, Brian set the wheels in motion when he purchased his first real estate property. And he noticed that a 15K wholesale fee was attached to the deal and the wheel started turning in how he could get himself into real estate and marketing in the Pittsburgh area. He tossed around the carrot and he crushed it. And that's how Motivated Leads was born. With time being so precious, Brian knows the importance of staying put. Literally, his wealth building strategy has developed to where he helps you invest in a single zip code. So we're going to talk about how to niche down into a specific area, build wealth through real estate and digital marketing. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. What's going on? Thanks for having me. I am excited because these are two of my favorite subjects. Most people don't know I have a secret love for digital marketing because I created a secret business digital marketing. (laughs) Um, A few years ago, a client asked me to um, that I interviewed for a magazine and then he hired me to help with some blog writing, actually asked me to start writing his emails when he created an ebook and he wanted to do a sales campaign for it. The sales campaign went so well that he then hired me to do his emails full time and then introduced me to all his friends. So I have been secretly building a email marketing business um, that's pretty successful with five good clients who are steady and they are IG influencers. So I love to talk about email marketing. And this is the first time I'm probably talking about it publicly, but um, I also love real estate because Most of you who listen to the podcast know that I started out in single family homes, renting those out, and now I invest in hotels and apartment syndications. So now we get to combine my two favorite topics today with Brian, and you're so awesome to be here and to discuss. So let's hop into one thing first. I like to give all my guests a background about... um, who you are and what you do and where you're from. So if you could just take a second to let me know what was money like for you when you were growing up? Because some of my guests, this is literally how they get insight into your life and how you've been able to transition to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, born and raised, right? I actually grew up in a town called Bethel Park. I still live here. Like I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh, which my accent could probably tell you that, right? Um, I mean, we grew up normal. We weren't rich or anything like that. Um, got a job when I was 16, working at the hardware store up the street. I was one of the kind of people, I've had probably like 50 jobs. 
Like I went to work somewhere. I'm like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going somewhere else. So I was just one of those people. I never, it took me a while to find out uh, really what I wanted to be doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's where I came from. That's awesome. And I love it how you still stay home and still made an impact where you live. So what came first? Was it the marketing side of you that was woken up or was it the real estate? It sounds like marketing, but did you actually have a passion for both and you just went into marketing first? It was a hybrid. So I went in when I, like back in like 98, my dad took me to a, you know who Ron Legrand is? He's, he's one of the guys that he used to travel the country giving seminars. Okay. So I went to one of those seminars back in 98. Uh, I was 18 years old and bought one of the courses in the back of the room. It was like 2000 bucks or something, which is a lot of money, right? Put it on my credit card, learned how to do real estate, stuck up ads in the newspapers, things like that. We were doing newspaper back then. Like you didn't have online stuff. Got a whole bunch of people that wanted to sell their house and I couldn't do anything with them. I didn't know what I was doing. So I got into real estate then, but it didn't work. Then I got into digital marketing about 2000 early 2000s. Then I got back into real estate and it did work. So if that makes sense, kind of like a yeah. hybrid. Yeah, it did. It did. But it's interesting to know that you didn't get discouraged. I think that's really important for people to realize that you can do something again the second time around and do it better. What did you do differently the second time around though? Well, the second time around, I had more um, punches in my face. Like I failed a lot, right? So, and then the second time around, it was, it was different. I wasn't, so initially I went to the seminar. It's like how to get rich pretty much, like how to get into real estate without spending any of your own money, which people can do that. But the second time around, I was older and I had a little bit of money to invest. So it made purchasing the property make more sense in my head. And also it just made more sense. I was more comfortable with it. So I purchased the property, put some cash into it, refied back out and that worked. Versus I never got into the sub two type of stuff, which a lot of people do. It just didn't work for me. Got it. Got it. So what was your first job in the freelance space? Seeing that you did real estate, didn't work. Then you got into marketing. What was the first thing you did? My first job, I was freelancing on Odesk, which is now Upwork. Mm -hmm. I remember my first client, he was a jewelry business in uh, Israel huh. up, up there. And uh, I was just consulting with him on his SEO. Okay. And then, yeah, I just kept taking on clients like that and it grew into a business. Like I started freelancing for like 20 bucks an hour. It grew into a business charging a couple hundred bucks an hour and um, dealing with like big clients, like national, international. Mm -hmm. types of things. Well, how did you know exactly when to start scaling your business and going from one man to agency? What types of decisions helped you make that solid um, recommendation for your business? Yeah, it was um, time. So, so what I did, I started at 20 bucks an hour, right? And then when I got too busy, I raised my prices. And then, and then when I got too busy, I kept following that until I was up to a couple hundred bucks an hour. But then it's like, okay, if I'm charging people a few hundred dollars an hour, I don't need to be doing the things I can hire someone for $20 an hour to do. So I would start pulling in people like that that could do the small things so I could stay working on strategy. I love that. And I think that's what a lot of business owners fail to do because they want to do all the things and they also are afraid that they can't pay someone or they can't afford to pay someone. But my coach actually in 2020 convinced me to hire a virtual assistant. And I was like, I don't know. I don't want to be responsible for paying someone else. And she was like, just do it because you checking your email or you following up on clients is just not the most cost effective use of your time. 
And I honestly totally appreciate that I took her advice because my business grew and at that time had made the most money it ever made because when I got rid of those admin tasks, I was able to focus on the fun stuff. So I always recommend that entrepreneurs think about what do they not like to do and what is it that they're doing, but it's not the best use of their time and then outsourcing those things. But I like what you said about using kind of money as a scale. So when you were charging 20 bucks an hour, you were really, really busy at that race. You raised your prices, which also tends to eliminate some of your clients, but it also puts you in front of the right clients, right? So you are getting to do what you love, but at the higher rate, which is helping you pay the bills. Um, so tell me a little bit about your SEO expertise because you got into it at a time where I feel like Google was still figuring itself out, um, but fairly advanced. Um, and now it's even more advanced. I feel like SEO is like a four letter word for some people because we just don't get it. So what are some tips that you have for someone who wants to optimize their website? Yeah, sure. And yeah, I did get back in it like way back in the day. So it was awesome because you could just change some words on your page, spam a bunch of links and you ranked, right? Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening too, because you said a lot of people were still working nine to five. I did all this while working at nine to five. So I started that whole business up to growing it with multiple employees, still working at nine to five because I didn't have the nuts to quit my job yet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so SEO is basically ranking the free section of Google, right? So <clears throat> if you look at the search engine, Google's sole purpose is to answer someone's question that types into the Google search with the most relevant answer. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to make your website relevant for what phrases you think your people are trying to search. Me, for example, if I'm trying to buy houses in Pittsburgh, I want to rank for phrases like sell my house fast, uh, cash home buyers in our area. And what you want to do is you want to make sure your content's unique on your website and you optimize it. Like if you're targeting sell my house fast, we have that phrase in the Title, title tag, meta description, and the body content. We're trying to make every single page about something. If that it, it, targeting yeah. one phrase, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And for those newbies out there, um, these are some of the things on your website that you really need to focus on. So like, for example, your meta description is the part that you would fill out that kind of is the preview when you do a Google search. You know, it tells you the website and then what that, page or articles about, and you can write that. I didn't, you know, prior to me creating my own website, I had no idea that someone actually types what shows up in the meta description. So there's even a character limit in that space so that people can see the whole description or enough to make them want to click the link. And those are the types of things that will get people to keep going to your specific website for your services. Um, But there's another thing that I kind of found a little mysterious in the beginning called link building. So that's like essentially when you're trying to get your website links on other people's websites and other people's websites are used on your um, your website. What are some tips you have for building authority with link building and not making it too spammy as you right, had cool. said before? Yeah. So yeah, link building is basically you're trying to get other websites to put your link on their website, right? So Google looks at that like votes. You get links coming to your website. It's a vote. If you have a link that says sell my house fast, which links to your sell my house fast page, Google looks at that and it's like, oh, this page is probably about that phrase, right? Mm -hmm. So there's different things you can do to build links. 
you can go on to websites like Haro, which is help a reporter out. Mm -hmm. You can submit. They, they're constantly, they have reporters that are constantly looking for content. You can submit in your field articles and ideas for that. And they may pick one up there. You get links. Uh, and you can outreach to blogs. Um, the one thing you want to make sure of, so link building and SEO is technically against Google's terms of service, right? We're trying to manipulate the search engine. So there's no real rule book on this is a good link or this is a bad link. But what you want to consider is when you're doing link building, the content you're putting out on this other site to get a link back, is it beneficial to the user? If the answer is yes, try to get those types of links. If it's no, like you're just spamming blog comments or things like that, which don't really work any anymore anyways, but things like that don't work and is not beneficial to the user, that's where you could possibly get a penalty. Mm. That's a really good point. And I think people need to keep that in mind. So I liked your comment about Haro, though, help a reporter out, because I've done that. I've responded to questions reporters have on personal finance questions, and then they have linked back to my website or my Connect page. And that's helped me get some leads, too, in addition to exposure. So that's a really good tip. And then I agree with you. The goal is to be helpful. I think that's what Google always wants to know is if I send someone in the direction to click this link, are they going to get their question answered? Are they going to get the information that they were intending to look for? Which is why Google is constantly adjusting their algorithm based on SEO as well. But I do feel, and I agree with you, that when you really do your research, so look for terms that you want to be known for, write content based on those terms, you can change your ranking on certain things, right? Because if you go after a search term that's not heavily saturated and you are the ex expert for that, you can start to rank for that. Because I've had a lot of podcasting friends, for example, who have started to rank for certain topics because they have just really niched down. And so it has helped them to be what comes up when they search or when you search, right? What yep. are your thoughts about um, someone's personal reputation on the internet? If I Google myself and I see something that's not so great, but I didn't write it and I don't know who did, is there anything you can do about that? Do you know? Yeah, so that's a, it depends what it is, right? Like some people, I used to have people hit me up all the time. Like, hey, you know what? We just ripped off a whole bunch of people. And now we got news press or whatever. Like they didn't say that, but they pretty much ripped people off and they made the news and they're trying to like hide that. And it's like, those are really reputable <laughs> sites that are really hard to push down. Right. Right. So uh, things like that, it depends on the situation. If it's on the wall street journal, ch chance of pushing it down or low. Mm -hmm. But if it's just BS kind of websites out there that are just being spammy or trolling, I usually recommend go buy, go get every social media profile out there in your name, like sign up for that first, populate it. Uh, that, that's going to rank for your name. A lot of this, like LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, like get those and get them for your name. Those are going to take up a lot of the spots there. If you do see some, uh, some sites ranking high though, I mean, you can just reach out to them. If it's not mm -hmm. true, mm -hmm. try to get them to pull it down. A lot of these websites are just spam now. Mm, so like, that you is can't true. even reach anybody. Um, you can report to Google on spammy stuff, but who knows what they do? Yeah, it might go down a black hole or something. <laughs> right. So, okay. Next thing, as an entrepreneur, I really feel like ads are constantly 
being talked about as the way to get yourself in front of eyeballs that have never seen you, right? And a lot of times we might have the best product or service, but we just don't have enough visibility in the market. What are your opinions about Facebook ads? Are they worth it? Or is there is there really a way to organically go viral anymore? Yeah, so Facebook ads are worth it. It depends on what you're doing. So if you're selling a product, 100% Facebook's really effective um, because Facebook shows ads based on behavior. So there, if you're looking at like, I'm not going to see ads with dresses or shoes, but my wife will, mm. but I'll see ads that are relevant for me. So they're targeting people. So Facebook ads will work if done properly though. What I mean by that is you have, there's a Facebook pixel. And what that is, it's if you're setting up a Facebook ad campaign, there's multiple ways to do it. Number one, a lot of people I see that are, that are new just boost posts. I don't recommend that. That's wasting money. Doing uh, traffic campaigns, engagement campaigns, video view campaigns, usually you're wasting your money on those also. What you want to do is it, it depends on what your objective is. I play a lot in the lead gen space, so we're trying to generate leads. So inside of Facebook, there's uh, objectives called le- you can get for leads or you can also go for sales if you have a product. And what you want to do is you want to make sure you have a Facebook pixel on your website. We want to tell Facebook, send traffic to our website, and we want the objective to be lead. So what I mean by that is we put the pixel on every side of our website. The pixel's just a snippet of code. That allows Facebook to see, it's creepy. It allows them to see who's on the website and modify the ads. So you send someone to your website, Facebook's pixel now sees them. And then on your thank you page, you're going to put an event called lead. So now what we're going to tell Facebook is send people to our website and make them go to our thank you page. And then we're trying to have their algorithm learn from the people that already made it to our thank you page. What do they like and show our ads to more people like that? So if you do it that way, same on e-commerce, you do the same thing with the purchase objective. And uh, even one more step on that is you would have an add to cart and then a purchase. People that make it to add to cart and don't purchase, you can retarget them with promo codes. Wow. See, and I just thought Big Brother was always listening. (laughs) Yeah. Because you know how sometimes someone will say like, you know, you just recommended to me, I should go check out Aquania's dress boutique because you saw this really cute dress that you think I would love. So then I go to Aquania's dress boutique on Google. And then all of a sudden I start seeing Aquania's dress boutique ads while I'm scrolling Facebook, while I'm scrolling Instagram. And I'm mm-hmm. always like, man, Big Brother is listening. But yeah. it's it's all a part of a cohesive marketing strategy. That's what it sounds like. Like people are thinking through your behavior. You went to Google, you looked for that. You didn't buy anything the first time, but now we're going to put ads in your face with a coupon code and see if you buy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they call that retargeting. They're retargeting you because you've been on the website already. Yeah, I love it. And I think that could be a game changer for a lot of small businesses, especially if awareness is your challenge, right? So spending money on ads. What do you recommend as far as a marketing budget? Let's say I'm just starting out and I'm building a business and I don't want to go broke doing ads. What should I do? That's a big question. So it depends on your business, right? And it depends what you're trying to do. For example, if you're if you have an e-commerce business, like you sell a product, start small and then reinvent because e-commerce, you will get sales immediately. Like 
not immediately from the ads, but whenever somebody purchases, you get paid right then. Right. So you can reinvest that money in. Uh, So what I would do is start small with a budget and it depends on the industry on how much you spend. I usually recommend like 50 bucks a day, which is 1500 a month. I know a lot of people starting can't start that high. So start with whatever you can, but then take and reinvest it. Now, if you're in the lead gen space or say even content creation, you might not see a return for six months. Like Mm -hmm. say you're trying to promote a podcast. You're just getting awareness. You're not getting money back from that normally. So you have to think, okay, how much can I afford to put towards this? And how long can I sustain that before I'm going to get money back? Like in my case, we're looking to buy houses. It might take 60 days to close a deal. So I need to be able to sustain probably six months, I would say, a budget so that I know money will be coming in to keep it going. That is such a good point. And I didn't even think about that. But as a business owner, when we want to be forward thinking, we want to budget, that's something really important to think about. So what is the big difference then between Facebook ads and Google ads? Is one preferred over the other? That also depends. You're asking good questions. So so <laughs> here's try. how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook is uh, impression-based. <clears throat> what I mean by that is you tell Facebook, I want you to show my ad and they're going to show it. Uh, maybe they'll show it a thousand times for 20 bucks. And they're showing it to people based on their behavior. <clears throat> so what I, what I mean by that, if I'm targeting people in Pittsburgh, I might say, hey, I want to target people in a 15 mile radius in Pittsburgh that are 35 years old and female or whatever it is. They're going to show my ad, but I'm competing against everybody else for that same impression share. The bakeries, the shoe stores, things like that. It ends up being cheaper, though, because we're only paying per impression, not click. Now on Google, somebody's searching intent, like the user intent. They're searching like in a real estate space, sell my house fast. In that, in this particular space that I play in, cost per clicks are really expensive. It may be 35 or $50 for one click. So the intent is there, but it's really, really expensive. It might cost you $400 to get a lead, right? Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're different on that. So depending on your industry, depending, like if you're a doctor, lawyer, uh, mortgages, real estate, uh, life insurance, or any type of insurance, it's really expensive on Google. Uh, Facebook's cheaper, but you kind of want to build a funnel. So mm-hmm. you send traffic from Google to your website and retarget them on Facebook and also try to bring in cool traffic from Facebook. I don't know if that answers your question. It does, but it also sounds like I need to hire an expert. <laughs> <laughs> Just because experts can sort of, like you said, strategize and work through these different scenarios. Where do you get the person from? What do you offer them for free? So they want to get on your email list, listen to your podcast or sell their house with you. But I would imagine that you've done this well because you um, have built a $5 million uh, real estate portfolio through your business. So let's hop into that and how marketing has helped you be successful in the real estate space. Um, When did you see, I guess, your first success as a real estate investor after that first closing? Yeah, it was probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago. So I bought my first property and I I did well on it. And then we, we slapped up, it's called a carrot website. We put one of those up and just put some ads to it. And people started hitting us up wanting to sell their house. Wow. Like unsight, unseen, never heard of you. Like, hey, just searching. I want to sell my house and yours came up. That's pretty dope. So yeah. what is your process then? If someone contacts you and says, I want to sell my house, what did you do to help them exactly? 
So what I do is if someone hits up our website and wants to sell their house, number one, we call within seconds. You have to call really fast with online leads, right? Um, and then I have a text message sent out to them also, just in case we don't get them, asking them to book an appointment for us to come give them an offer. But when I get them on a the call, I mainly want to find out what's their problem. Like people that we buy from usually have problems like their house is too beat up, is distressed properties, um, they inherited it and they don't have the money to fix it. Uh, so we're usually buying junk houses and then fixing them and then I, I just keep them and rent them out. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is we're just trying to find out, okay, what's your situation? Like what's the problem? And then can we help you solve that problem and create a win-win? Interesting. And what exactly is that strategy called? I think it does have a name, right? Um, I don't even know. The BRR. Oh, the Burr method. Yeah, right. R I don't even know. <laughs> don't worry, guys. He is an expert. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were talking about the negotiating strategy. Oh, no. Nego well, negotiation, smoshation. When someone right. needs, I think when someone needs the service, especially in a situation where there's a problem, I recommend you listen to them. Like I right. offer consultations for life insurance all the time. And a lot of times we get to the life insurance part, but we learn so much more about each other in the minutes we don't talk about life insurance, right? Like right. I learn how many kids you have and if you have a job and you know what's important to you. So why do you want to get insurance? In your case, you were probably figuring out why does this person want to sell this house, which helps you make a good offer, I'm sure. Um, right. But then you said you intentionally buy homes, fix and renovate, and then um, rent, right? Right. So why not flip and sell? Yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's a Burr method. That, that's what I do. I, <laughs> I don't want to start like, so I have full-time income from my digital marketing agency. I buy properties for a little bit different reason than most, most people do because I'm trying to push money to the future and build wealth. Uh, so I don't need to flip houses or anything like that because if I flip it, I, I don't have anything to do with the money anyways. Like I'm trying to buy as many properties as I can and I don't have an, enough actually to purchase. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't need the income on it. So that's why I just buy them. But I like the burst strategy because what you can do is you can buy a property cash, fix it, and then the bank will give you all your money back and then the tenant pays the mortgage. And then you I get like to that. keep recycling this. You have to have enough money to initially get it or know somebody that has enough to buy the house cash. But after that, you're just recycling the same money and getting houses for free. Yeah. So you're either using your capital or you're using hard money lender or someone else, another bank, right? A loan. But you have the capital to buy cash. And that's what helps what we call a motivated seller. Um, get out of their house quickly, right? So that's how you're buying houses fast. And then right. on average, how long are you taking to renovate? Yeah, normally I'll take like two months, something like that. We'll turn them around pretty quick. And you're right, you do have to do cash on most of these because most of the houses are in such poor shape, you can't really get a mortgage on them anyways. Right. And it's not like they could take this house and list it on an MLS. Like mm -hmm. they probably could, but the bank wouldn't finance it. They're just hammered. Right, right, right. And and I've had that situation. Um, you also can get lucky sometimes where that motivated seller is so eager to get out that the cash offer allows you to pay less than you would if you had a traditional bank loan process it, right? So right. for example, one of my first out-of-state real estate properties was in Philly and the tenant or the occupant, the owner of the home passed away. And so his kids were like, we don't want this house. 
We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to fix it. And honestly, it didn't even need a lot of work. They just didn't want to deal with it. So by offering cash, they were able to close in seven. We closed in seven days. They got to walk away with a check. And I got to get a property that honestly, for the last 20 years, had been well-maintained by the previous owner. He just died, right? And the kids didn't want to be bothered. And so when I took it over, it was mostly cosmetic. Redo the kitchen because it was pretty old and outdated and update some floors and new carpet, but I didn't have to do major work. I still chose in that case to get an inspection done. But I know that for you, your houses might be more dilapidated. So you're like inspection, smection, like it doesn't matter. We're going to fix it, right? We're going to get this house um, in rentable condition. So I really like that. What inspired you to stick to one zip code? Because I've had other real estate investors on my podcast who are like, build a team, go everywhere, go where the deals are good. And they have properties, I don't know, in dozens of states and some of them they've seen and some of them they haven't. What made you want to stick to um, an area that you can know well? Yeah, because I'm busy. Like I don't don't have time to dive there or to drive. Like Mm -hmm. I bought one property, it was 30 minutes away and going back and forth meeting with the contractors and stuff, it was just a time suck. Mm -hmm. Like I have a full business and a whole team on the digital side. It's like, I got to be able to get there in five minutes, make an offer, lock it up, and then put someone else on it and then move to something else. Oh, that's really interesting. So you're doing it out of convenience. Does that mean that aside from your general contractors, repair folks, you are managing all your properties too? Or are you a self-managed all-in-one guy? No, I used okay. to be. Okay. That's yeah. growth. That's growth. <laughs> yeah. I, I did it before. I had a problem. I managed my first couple properties. And people would talk me into renting that to them and they totally trashed the place. Like I, I wasn't able to, I didn't have that filter to pre-vet them. Mm. But now with the property manager, they manage all my stuff now. And when we rent a property out, it's just a piece of paper. It's like, do they pass or fail? I don't know them. I'm not hearing their stories, anything like that to get talked into renting to someone I normally wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That's so good. I'm glad you share that story. I um, feel the same way now. I use a property manager for my properties and one of the things my dad used to tell me is he was like, you got to be tough enough to kick out your own mom. If your mom doesn't pay the rent, she's got to go. And I'm like, what, mom, that's crazy. He's like, no, that's business, right? Um, and so I use the property manager for the same reason because I can be a sucker sometimes if someone's like, oh, it's Bobby's birthday and Christmas and we we just want to pay you next month. My dad's like, no, the rent's due now. And I'm like, oh, but it's Bobby's birthday. And so with a property manager, it's like, look, the rent's due on the first. You're late by the fifth. Here's the late fee. No questions asked, right? Um, I have property even in my own area as well. And I still visit the neighbors for dinner sometimes. And the tenants do not even know when we're coming or that we are the landlords. Um, but I'm still peeking, you know, checking on the property while I'm there. So I a hundred percent co-sign your strategy, even though you did it out of convenience. I also believe it's the most effective way to do it. Plus, I think property managers can do the vetting that you might not have time to do. Credit checks, background checks, calling previous landlords, and really making sure that you are renting to the best candidate possible because um, 
yes, if one landlord is trying to get rid of someone, they may give them a glowing recommendation. But if you have a team that'll talk to two landlords back sometimes, you'll get the truth. So guys, really listen to that advice. Uh, And if you find yourself stretched thin and you do have a lot of properties, maybe now is the time to hire a property manager. Oh man, this was really good. So Brian, uh, you've been super, super uh, helpful in helping us navigate digital marketing, SEO, and real estate. Um, So I just have two more questions for you. Um, What's your favorite book? What do you recommend that our listeners read? I'd love to know what you're reading. Yeah, the best book I know of is Richest Man in Babylon. I love it. That's a classic that I've read. And I think you can read over and over again. It's just one of those books that you can always find some new gems. So I'll make sure, guys, to leave a link in the show notes to The Richest Man in Babylon. And I recommend you read it too. And my last question is a signature question because on the Purpose of Money podcast, we have everyone share what's their purpose for money and why they are building wealth. So I want to ask you, what's your purpose for money? Yeah, my purpose is to accumulate enough wealth that I don't have to worry about working and that I can go out and help other people with it. I love it. Make work optional and help the world. Brian, this was awesome. If anybody listening wants to connect with you, work with you, or just learn more about you, where should they go? Yeah, sure. Our website's motivatedleads.com. So yeah, just check out motivatedleads.com. Excellent. I will make sure to include that in the show notes as well, guys. Make sure to check out Brian's website, all of his services, and how you can potentially work together. Um, I hope to see more of you investing in one zip code after listening to this episode. And definitely, if you like this episode, share it with those you love and those you know, and make sure to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much. Until next time, keep building generational wealth. Thank you for listening to the Purpose of Money podcast. For more resources and information, check out my website, thepurposeofmoney.com. And while you're there, please sign up for our newsletter so you'll have all the latest information on new episodes and blog posts. Until next time, keep building generational wealth.